Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. My guest today is Dr. Matthew Shields, Senior Offshore Wind Analyst at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, or NREL. Matt joined NREL in 2018 and leads the lab's work on offshore wind techno-economic analysis, which involves developing cost models, analyzing market and technology trends, and projecting the future costs of offshore wind. He is the lead author of a new study on the demand for a domestic offshore wind energy supply chain, which is the subject of our conversation today. The study focuses on a March 2021 announcement by the Biden administration, setting a goal of 30 gigawatts of offshore wind installation in the U.S. by 2030. In order to meet that goal, the U.S. will need to procure large amounts of new equipment, as detailed in delightful detail in the report, uh, but little of that equipment is currently sourced in the U.S. The events of the past few years, from pandemic to war, have encouraged countries to rethink where they source many materials, and the Biden administration has taken a hard look in particular at those supply chains tied to decarbonization. So Matt and I will discuss the offshore wind project pipeline, the availability of ports, vessels, and other key needs, as well as the potential employment impacts of building a domestic supply chain for offshore wind. Stay with us. Hi, Matt. Welcome to Resources Radio. Thanks very much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Great. So it sounds like you've been at NREL for about four years now. And maybe before we dive into this particular study, uh, can you share with our listeners a little bit more about your path to NREL and and sort of more generally about the work you do there? Yeah. So my my background's in uh, engineering, mechanical and aerospace engineering. Um, And before joining NREL, I was... uh, I was part of the faculty at Seattle University and was sort of starting to get involved in wind energy research and was uh, getting involved with a student team that was participating in the collegiate wind competition, uh, which is, I think, my, my first exposure to, to, uh, to NREL and the, the wind energy industry as a whole. Uh, I was also doing a lot of work uh, in humanitarian engineering, so doing some business development and uh, sort of economic modeling for some projects in sub-Saharan Africa. And so sort of the combination of these two was a, was a good fit for this particular techno-economic position at, at NREL when that, when that came online, and I was able to, to move over to the lab in, in 2018. Um, so the, the work that, that my group does here is to focus on basically how uh, offshore wind can uh, advance itself either at, through technology or through new innovations or through better processes in order to make it more cost competitive, in order to meet uh, infrastructure limitations or to meet uh, deployment targets or something similar. So basically, you know, we, we have some models that we put together that look at what the existing type of projects look like in terms of the technologies, the port resources, the vessels, the costs, and and so forth. And we try to explore these to see where the most meaningful cost reduction pathways can come from. In the last couple of years, that work has really expanded to include more of this supply chain and logistics, uh, as that's become kind of a bigger and bigger challenge and opportunity for the industry, uh, as we particularly as uh, the turbines get bigger and bigger and as uh, the technology advances at this really rapid pace, uh, we need to understand 
how is it possible to to even logistically install these projects and and how could that be um, sort of tailored to meet the needs of the industry here in the US, which is just trying to get off the ground. So that's really been my, my focus here at the lab for the last couple of years. That's great. And it sounds like, um, you know, certainly I shared a little bit at the beginning about kind of how the study came to be, but it sounds like even before that March 2021 announcement, there was a sense that this line of, of inquiry around the supply chains was a priority for NML. Is that right? So it's got a history and, and I understand there's a future too. So this is the first in a two-part series. Maybe you can just help me motivate the study just a little bit more. Uh, so yeah, so that's exactly right. So we we originally wrote the proposal for this in 2019, uh, before the the Biden administration and, and the 30 gigawatts offshore wind target. Uh, the the study is funded through the National Offshore Wind R and D Consortium, and so the 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 project that we proposed was to look at this offshore wind supply chain, uh, and and really be a little bit more, I would say, hypothetical about what it was going to look like. And then after the Biden administration made the announcement, there's been a slew of announcements from project developers, from technology providers, uh, from people in the supply chain showing really a ramped up interest in, in investing in offshore wind in the U.S. So I think that the um, the, the project itself sort of uh, was, was very timely in that regard and that it uh, was sort of posing a lot of the questions that were relevant at the time. And then I think now it's even more dovetailed with what industry is, is sort of trying to develop on their own as well. So that the hope is that this particular project can help to provide a um, more of a strategic look at how these individual announcements and individual motivations of players in the supply chain can be uh, tied together to to sort of more efficiently develop the supply chain in the U.S. and in general, that's that's why this study is a priority and an interest for NREL. Um, you know, we're certainly not the people that are going to be investing in these facilities or actually making the parts, for example. Uh, but we try to provide these uh, strategic type viewpoints where I, I think we can represent both the industry perspectives, uh, federal and state government perspectives, uh, other key stakeholders in the industry, and, and sort of sit in the middle of those different, different groups in order to show uh, the potential benefits and opportunities for everybody involved in a, in a domestic offshore wind supply chain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and certainly I've seen a number of those announcements recently about new areas open for leasing, new projects getting announced. So maybe we can talk just a bit about the pipeline of those offshore wind projects in the U.S. And I, I have to say, I found it interesting, the report notes that at least as of the time of publication, which is spring 2022, that goal of 30 gigawatts of installation can in fact already be met by planned capacity in either awarded or soon to be awarded lease areas. So in other words, even with no new leases, uh, we're on track to meet that 30 by 30 goal. Is that right? Have I interpreted that correctly? I, I think I think that's right. And of course, there are some nuances to discuss there. Uh, you know, I, I think that from a, a pure sort of space perspective, yes, what, what we discuss in the study, and I think what we've reviewed with some of the key regulatory bodies and uh, developers and, and people that are going to be building the projects, we think that there is enough space in these lease areas and the lease areas that, you know, for example, were just awarded a couple of weeks ago in the New York Bite, that uh, that there's enough real estate that that we can get 30 gigawatts into the water by, by 2030. Now, that assessment does not necessarily identify 
the challenges in actually building those projects. The space is there, the infrastructure might not be, the grid connections might not be, the, the ports and vessels might not be, the permitting and regulatory environment might, might not be there. So I would say it's, it's still not a certainty that, that we're going to be able to meet that target. There's quite a bit of work to be done in order to, um, to kind of streamline the process and make sure that the, um, the supporting infrastructure and decision making and technology is there to, to allow it to be done. And that's really one of the focuses of, uh, of why we're working on this supply chain project to try to identify how we can move that part of the industry forward so that it doesn't become a bottleneck for that, that 30 gigawatts target. And then there are certainly other groups, including here at NREL, that are doing the same thing for grid transmission or the permitting and regulatory environment and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, I did notice, too, that one of the things that you and your co-authors highlighted is that beyond the awarded and soon-to-be-awarded lease areas, there are a number of areas that are sort of in the queue, if you will, for leasing through the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management. Um, so maybe we can talk just a little bit about the, the pipeline beyond these sort of awarded and soon to be awarded and uh, and why that matters. I thought you guys did a really good job of sort of articulating um, what needs to happen beyond this initial set of, of leases as well. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, and, and thanks so much for highlighting that. And I, I think you, you've really identified a kind of a critical piece of the, the report and, and really the, the future perspectives on the industry as a whole. Um, so just for, for context, if this is helpful, you know, the, the way that the, the process kind of works here is that BOEM, or the, the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, which is part of the Department of Interior, um, controls the outer continental shelf and the, the leasing of the of the sites which are going to be allocated for offshore wind. So uh, they, they hold these lease auctions. Um, that gives a project developer site control for a specified uh, amount of time. And then during that time, they have to go through a series of permitting and environmental uh, processes before they can actually get a construction plan approved um, and, and then go forth with building the project. Um, so the the focus of the deployment pipeline through 2030 that we, we talk about in the report is really areas that have already been awarded or are planned or ha- had already been announced at the time of writing to be awarded this year in, in, in 2022. So for example, that includes the New York Bite. Um, and these, uh, these lease auctions were completed about a month ago. Uh, they were super exciting. Um, the auction prices went for about 10 times what any previous offshore wind area had been leased for in the past. And the the most popular one went for over a billion dollars just to get site control for the, um, for, for the offshore wind area. So then what we look at in the study is for these areas that have been awarded by the end of 2022, well, how long would it actually take to develop these and when is it likely for these to start generating electricity? And and that's what we kind of refer to it by the, the sites that can get us to 30 gigawatts by 2030. Now, beyond 2030, there is certainly an intent to continue the momentum of the offshore wind industry uh, that we don't want to give the impression, which I think would, would be an incorrect impression, that we would get to 30 gigawatts by 2030 and then the industry would just stop. Very much the opposite. Um, the the goal of BOEM and, and people that are advancing the industry in the U.S. is to have a sustainable industry where um, we don't have a huge ramp up and then a drop off from, from year to year, um, which would obviously have uh, adverse impacts on the supply chain and the, uh, the, you know, the workforce that might be working at capacity one year and then 
uh, unemployed the next year. Nobody in the industry wants to see that happen. So Boehm is working to identify and um, uh, announce some new leasing areas and leasing opportunities that will sustain that pipeline through the 2030s uh, at a, a relatively constant rate. So they've announced um, that later this year they're going to lease uh, some areas off of the Carolinas and in California, and that by the end of 2025, they plan on conducting additional leasing activities in the Gulf of Mexico, um, the Central Atlantic, Oregon, and the Gulf of Maine. Uh, they haven't made any further announcements beyond that, but uh, we think it's it's possible that we would see additional leasing opportunities beyond those ones that have, that have already been announced. Um, this would be a mix of fixed bottom and floating offshore wind, and we don't know the capacities for sure, but in sort of evaluating how big some of the lease areas have been in the past that they've auctioned off, we think that this might be realistic to get another... 10 to 15 gigawatts installed by 2035. So from 2030 to 2035. Uh, again, with the target of kind of maintaining these four or five gigawatts per year um, to, to have a sort of stable pipeline um, for, for the industry. And this in itself is, is really valuable for the people in the supply chain that are looking at investing in new facilities, new workforce, new certifications, in order to know that you're going to have a relatively consistent customer or a relatively consistent business model going beyond that 2030 target. Right, right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and again, thanks for, for talking through that. that. That struck me as a, um, a really interesting insight from the study, just the potential for demand drop off and, and how getting over that hump is, is equally important for the supply chain considerations. So where are most of these items currently produced in the world? If they're not produced here, where are they being produced? And when we're talking about building a domestic supply chain for these many complicated and large-scale items, which ones of these present the biggest challenges? Yeah, so the the all of these components are primarily built in uh, in Europe and to some extent in in Asia as well. Um, the turbines themselves are uh, are not being manufactured in the U.S. We've we've broken ground on one foundation facility in New Jersey, which is going to make uh, monopiles, which is one of the the most common uh, offshore wind foundations uh, globally. Uh, we do have an operating export cable facility in South Carolina, which is uh, owned and operated by a, a company called. Nexons. Um, and so they've actually already been producing export cable for, for offshore wind and have some overseas customers where they're shipping out cables to the, the UK. Um, these, the export cables are, are used to connect the offshore wind farm to the, the onshore grid. Um, so, so we do have some operating capacity in the US. Um, however, this is really a, a drop in the bucket of what we would need to have a full domestic offshore wind supply chain. In addition to the components themselves, we also have a big demand for vessels. Some of these vessels are relatively straightforward, um, where you may be able to repurpose uh, vessels from, for example, the oil and gas industry in the U.S. that could be used for particular aspects of offshore wind installation. However, most of the vessels are highly specialized and, and essentially need to be built or at least retrofit and customized for the offshore wind industry. Uh, I, I think the vessel that gets the most attention is this wind turbine installation vessel. So this is the vessel which basically assembles the turbine and foundation out at sea at the project site. Um, and there's probably only two of these vessels that can actually um, install this next generation of turbines, which are going to be built in the U.S., 
And when I say that, I mean there's only two vessels globally that can do that. Um, there are another six or seven which are planned or announced or under construction, but this is certainly a bottleneck, which is the which the industry is is quite aware of. So I, I think that when we talk about you know the the challenges of of building out a, a domestic supply chain is that we need to understand that I think first and foremost the U.S. does not operate in a vacuum. Um, so there are substantial offshore wind targets in Europe and Asia um, that uh, that are uh, that existing supply chains and vessels are already going to have to support. So many of the components, these foundations, these turbines, and so forth, right now they're being built in you know huge. Uh, offshore wind hubs, so basically a combination of port and manufacturing facilities uh, in Northern Europe, uh, the UK, Germany, uh, the Netherlands, and, and so forth. Um, the capacity of these facilities is going to be pretty maxed out in order to meet the ambitious offshore wind targets that Europe has by 2030. So it's it's not necessarily fair to assume that, uh, the, that the U.S. can just order the components that they need from these uh, international fabricators. Um, it's it's a fairly significant risk to the 30 gigawatts target that um, that we wouldn't be able to source the components we need if there isn't a domestic supply chain. So I think that that is certainly a, a point which is an important takeaway from the study that that we found, which is that uh, the the if the U.S. wants to be able to to meet this 30 gigawatts target, it would be uh, a significant advantage to have a a domestic supply chain to source those components from. Mm -hmm. This Friday is Earth Day. Let's celebrate our planet and commit to tackling the challenges of climate change. At Resources for the Future, we make that part of our daily work. In honor of Earth Day, we are asking listeners to make a donation and help us fulfill RFF's mission of advancing a healthy environment and a thriving economy. Make a gift at rff.org donate on or before Earth Day, and you will receive a print subscription to Resources Magazine. Thanks for being a Resources Radio listener. Now enjoy the rest of the episode. Yeah, it definitely sounds like the U.S. has our has our work cut out for us in terms of the volume of, of material needed and the complexity of the material needed. Um, but one of the sections that I found most interesting in the report was was the section on port readiness, which is sort of another component of of building a domestic supply chain. Something that I don't think about very often, but of course, it, as I was reading through the study, it made perfect sense that um, not every port would be ready for these kinds of vessels and, and this kind of uh, service. So the, the study notes that only one port on the East Coast, and in fact zero ports on the West Coast, are currently well suited to offshore wind deployment. Uh, so what what actually makes a port suitable for that? And what would it take for us to get more ports ready here in the U.S.? Yeah, so there's a there's a lot to discuss here uh, with with ports uh, that can service the offshore wind industry. I think the first thing that I should say is that although uh, we do feel that ports are going to be a challenge for the industry, uh, project developers and port operators are are actively working on solutions to this, and and they're going to find ways to make it work. So there are these major limitations, but that doesn't mean that projects aren't going to get built. the The question is more of how can we set up our infrastructure to build projects efficiently and reduce delays and cost overruns and and so forth. I think some background context might be helpful to to 
discuss kind of what the role of the port is for, for offshore wind. So the way that an offshore wind project is built involves staging these major components like foundations, towers, nacelles, and blades at a marshalling port, then transporting them to the offshore wind site, and then building them up piece by piece using these highly specialized wind turbine installation vessels. Um, and just for reference, each blade for these new offshore wind turbines, which will be used in the U.S., is going to be over 100 meters long and is going to be installed about 130 meters above sea level. So um, the, the size and scale of these components is just staggering um, and, and really needs uh, these highly specialized pieces of equipment to, to install them. On top of which, even the fabricating these components needs to be done at a port because the uh, the components are so big that you can't move them on roads. You can't move them via railway. Uh, you basically have to float them to the marshalling site and then transport them out to sea. So there, there are sort of two physical constraints that drive the complexity of the port operations. Um, the, the first of which is, again, the size of these components. And then second is the corresponding size of the vessel that you need to install them. So as you can imagine, to install a blade 130 meters above sea level, you need a vessel that can, can reach that high and it can do it in a stable manner so that uh, you can actually attach the blade to the rest of the turbine. So then a further complication is that there's a regulation called the Jones Act in the U.S., which means that a vessel transiting between two ports in U.S. waters has to be built in the U.S., U.S. flagged, owned by a U.S. owner, and and crewed by a U.S. crew. And an offshore wind turbine counts as a port. So that means it has to be a U.S. vessel going back and forth from the the port at the shore to the wind turbine itself. So that's that's another complicating factor. In Europe, most projects historically have been installed with one wind turbine installation vessel going back and forth from the port to the site, picking up the components along the way, handling the transportation, and then the installation of the components. What we present in this report shows that many projects in the U.S. will not be able to do this because of um, these physical restrictions like channel depth or low bridges that mean that the wind turbine installation vessel can't get to many of the ports on the East Coast, or even if they can get up the channel, they can't They can't dock, they can't load components, and, and they couldn't get them back out to sea. Um, and then second, as I had mentioned before, there just simply aren't enough of these vessels worldwide that can, can handle this next generation of, of 15 megawatt turbines. So there there is a little bit of a challenge in this this question of how does this interrelation between ports and vessels work uh, and, and how can we actually install projects given you know, the, the challenges of ports and, and, uh, and the availability of vessels. So what we really highlight in the report is that there's only one port on the East Coast that can that's already well suited to have a, a wind turbine installation vessel basically sail up to the dock, load components, and, and sail back out to the site. However, there are more ports that are acceptable for uh, feeder barges, which are, are smaller and, and uh, maybe simpler vessels that you can basically use just to transport components. So you would, you would sail a feeder barge to the port, load the components, the feeder barge sails out to the project site where the wind turbine installation vessel is waiting to install the components. This actually has some advantages. Uh, it's probably cheaper for the project and will take less time because this expensive and specialized wind turbine installation vessel is exclusively working on installing components. It's not transiting back and forth. 
but it's also a riskier operation because there's more at sea operations. You're 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 transferring a component from one vessel to another. Um, there you have more weather delays. That there may be uh, more exposure of of the workforce to these these type of conditions. So um, there's there's challenges posed there as well. So really, I think what has to happen here is that the the port and vessel development in the U.S. kind of has to happen almost in parallel with these projects. The challenge is that the design of the vessels, the design of the port, and the design of the turbine need to be kind of synchronized. As turbines get bigger, you need to have a vessel that can lift it. As that vessel gets bigger, it's harder and harder to get it into the port. Um, so it's it's really this sort of systems problem that uh, that would really benefit from coordination between all these different entities in, in the supply chain. Um, and then I think that certainly there's a role that investment can play in in uh, shoring up the capabilities at the different ports and in. Uh, helping to finance the investment in new vessels and so forth, but honestly, a problem that we see is is just uh, space. Uh, there's not a lot of space or locations on on the east coast where you can build a new port. So I think we're going to have to see this um, scenario where there's this uh, where there's kind of a coordinated approach with all these different ports in all the different states understanding what role they can play um, and, and how they can kind of share the load to develop offshore wind. So um, some of these ports that might be located pretty far up the Hudson River in New York, for example, may be unable to, to be this marshalling port because you can't get a wind turbine installation vessel um, under some of the bridges going up the Hudson River. However, that could be a manufacturing port or a fabrication port for particular components. And, and that would potentially relieve some of the pressure on the marshalling ports as well as uh, you know creating more opportunities for, for those other areas and, and other communities that, that may be looking to get involved in offshore wind. So there's a lot of opportunities like that where if we can kind of strategically plan what role different entities can play in a supply chain in the U.S., it, it may first have the opportunity to create more benefits that can be distributed uh, amongst these different groups, as well as making it more likely that we actually meet this this 30 gigawatts target by 2030. Mm-hmm. So, and, and Matt, that's a great lead into my next question, which is because you've been mentioning communities and communities that might actually benefit from the many pieces of the supply chain, particularly if they can be distributed. So, um, so let's turn to to communities and in particular to jobs estimates. And the study spends some time on uh, jobs estimates stemming from a more robust domestic manufacturing industry for offshore wind. And if there's anything that I've learned from working with economists for many years, it's that jobs estimates are notoriously tricky. So how did you and your team set about developing those, those job estimates? And what did you find? Yeah, we would certainly agree. I think it's a it's a it's a challenging area to to dive into. Um, you know, luckily, uh, NREL and and some of my co-authors on the study uh, are you know actively maintain and and use uh, some economic development models. Uh, we have a model called Jedi, the Jobs and Economic Development Impact Model, and so what we're able to do with that model is sort of link the uh, the supply chain demand that we come up with in this in this paper, so the the number of components and the type of components and the scheduling for them, 
we estimate the capital costs for all of those. So basically how much, uh, how much investment is needed to build those. And then we are able to use an economic input-output model to kind of scale from the costs of the components to the number and type and distribution of jobs um, that are needed to build those. So what we come up with is that um, there's a lot of jobs that are needed if we're going to be manufacturing these thousands of turbines domestically. Um, we, uh, we, we try to provide a range in this study uh, because the future path to sort of how these components would be built um, is it can evolve in a lot of different ways. So we, we kind of bracketed it. We said, you know, if, okay, at a minimum, maybe we say there's 25% domestic content at a maximum, 100% domestic content. In reality, we think probably the truth is is somewhere in the middle and, uh, and will certainly grow over time as there's more domestic capabilities. But we see that in the in the order of uh, an average of sort of between twelve thousand and almost fifty thousand annual jobs that could be used to uh, to to manufacture all the components for for offshore wind. What I personally found really interesting in this was that the majority of those jobs are what are called indirect jobs. So if you think of a direct job, that's the, you know, the people that are in that finishing factory putting the, you know, the final component together, whereas the indirect jobs are sort of the underlying supply chain that, uh, that could be contributing to that. Um, and in some cases, we saw as many as maybe two-thirds of the jobs per component uh, may, may be in that indirect uh, category. What that really means is that while we see announcements for these final offshore wind component facilities like a blade or a foundation or a nacelle, um, and those would be located in one particular state, that doesn't necessarily mean that all of the benefits and jobs from that state would be contained within those borders. There's a big indirect supply chain, which is going to feed into those factories, uh, which may be distributed among neighboring states or even throughout the entire country. Um, we see states in the Rust Belt, in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, like I mentioned, the offshore wind vessel being built in Texas. Um, there, there are a lot of states that have the opportunity con to contribute to uh, to the offshore wind industry, and I think that um, that's a, a big takeaway that we plan on sharing in, in the second phase of this study um, as, as we try to categorize what those benefits are and, and how they can be distributed regionally throughout the U.S. So unfortunately, we are getting low on time. Uh, I feel like I could ask you many more questions about yaw and pitch bearings and flanges and all the other wonderful items referenced in the report, but um, but we should close. And let's close with our regular feature called Top of the Stack. So um, I would welcome any recommendation you might have for more good content, either related to this topic or otherwise, uh, that you might want to share with our listeners. So Matt, what's on the top of your stack? Well, I'll take the opportunity to, to plug the next phase of our report, uh, which will come out in uh, later this year, which is going to sort of build off of what we did in this uh, report and look a little bit more at um, you know what that domestic supply chain might look like in 2030. So we, we understand the demand a little bit better. Now, what might it look like to build those facilities? Where might they go? What investment might be needed? What specific type of jobs might be needed in those factories? And what sort of enabling mechanisms might let us get there by 2030? So uh, please do keep an eye out for that uh, you know, later this year. I tend to... Uh, point people towards a couple of other uh, good offshore wind reports. Um, there's a, an annual offshore wind market report, which is um, published by the Department of Energy uh, with a lot of NREL authors in it, um, that gives a good status update of, of what the state of the industry is every year. There's a recent 
publication from the Special Initiative for Offshore Wind out of the University of Delaware that looks at the uh, supply chain uh, capital expenditures, which we might need to get to 30 gigawatts by 2030. I think that's a nice complement to the report that, that we just published. Uh, and they find that it's it's probably a $100 billion industry um, to by 2030 uh, to, to get to these 30 gigawatt goals. And then uh, just a, a third point that I would note is that some of my co-authors on the report, uh, the Business Network for Offshore Wind, uh, do manage a, a podcast called the Offshore Wind Insider, which has some a really wide range of, of topics that they cover, ranging from the grid to workforce to uh, policy to specific projects and, and so forth. So I think that's a good one to check out. In the non-offshore wind space, um, I've got two little kids at home, so my, my reading uh, time has been pretty much focused on animals and construction equipment recently. Um, but uh, I did just read a book called The Black Swan by Nicholas Taleb, which looks at uh, uh, risks uh, and how to manage risk, particularly low probability, high impact risks, uh, and I, which I think has a lot of good parallels to the, to the offshore industry. So I, I found that one pretty interesting. I would highly recommend it. Great. Great. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for talking through this report with us for the recommendations for the future. And I'll be on the lookout for the second half of the report later this year. Thanks so much. I'd love to come back and talk about it when we publish the next one. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.